Hello, Charlie Gladstone here and welcome to episode 12 of my Mavericks podcast. I've taken a bit of a break over the last few weeks um, and haven't done any podcasting because I've been concentrating on our festival, the Good Life Experience. Now that's over and um, I'm wandering around on the site. It's deathly quiet except for the wind and a few um, high up, far off birds that you may or may not be able to hear. I'm actually looking out over one of the campsites at the moment and there is absolutely not one single bit of stray litter anywhere. One of the aims when we opened the festival was to try and be as litter-free as we could and it's quite amazing how our guests have embraced that. So if you were here at the weekend in North Wales, thank you very, very much. Anyway, on to today's podcast. I sat down on Saturday evening, no it wasn't, sorry, it was Friday evening, with Keris Matthews, um, my partner in the festival. There's four of us that founded it, Keris and her husband, Steve Abbott, and me and my wife, Caroline. And we sat down in one of our main speaker's tents in front of an audience of several hundred and had a chat for just over half an hour. This is the results of the chat. Um, I actually got the recorder wrong to begin with, or didn't in fact turn it on, I should really say, honestly. But um, I realized luckily after a little while, I asked her to begin with um, about something she said to me over dinner the night before, which was that she thought that all children were born musical. And so we'll segue straight into that. Um, and without further ado, I very much hope that you enjoy me speaking to Keris Matthews at The Good Life Experience 2017. only when they start thinking and reasoning and following sort of patterns of their peers um, that they realize that music is different to talking um, and that it's a thing that maybe is embarrassing or any of that kind of thing when you start thinking about it academically instead of just doing it then then this sort of your your sort of not ego but your your consciousness steps in and tells people you can't be musical so yeah, I, I totally and utterly believe that all children are born musical, yeah. So, I, I, do you have to then make a child learn an instrument? Because it <laughs> seems to me as a parent that, that, I know you've got very musical children, but that's been one of the big struggles for us. I don't know if other parents have found that, that that kind of early stages of getting through it is hard. I mean, do you have to force that on a child, do you think, to get them going? My brother's in the back of the tent. Um, there's an example of a child that was forced to learn an instrument, am I right? Who's in the cup in the back. Um, ask, ask my brother. <laughs> I, was it okay? Are you musical? Abused. <laughs> so... And then, and then you compare what my brother's talking about to, you know, the, the culture, say, in China, where the child is, you know, you have to practice, and you have to practice for an hour or two hours a day, and they do play very, very well. So it's, a, it's an interesting balance, isn't it? But I think, I think there's some children that take to it naturally more and have that natural drive, and I'm naturally fascinated by it, in, in the same way as you'll have a child that is more interested in the visual arts, for instance, so it's inherent as well. But, but so you, you were, I mean, you, were, you, you remain, but you have been an incredibly successful musician for a very long time. 
did I mean, did you think I want to be a musician or did you want to be a pop star or, or <laughs> what, what kind of came first? I wanted to be Bob Dylan. Did you? <laughs> and um, I don't know if Richard remembers, but... You know, I, my first musical memory, really, apart from singing along, because we were very lucky to be brought up by um, a lady who absolutely adored singing and still does, and a father who adores listening to great music. So it really does influence whoever you're spending time with, what you choose to play on your radio and blah de blah de blah. So my dad used to listen to Bob Dylan and a lot of jazz and Tosca and opera and stuff like that. And then Sonny and Cher and these mixtapes on the medicine cassettes that we'd have endlessly playing in the car because he'd put the seller tape on the cassette and yes. and then record over <laughs> these free cassettes because yeah, yeah. They, they, you know it, the drug companies would give you free cassettes to sell their drugs you know the, the med medicinal drugs that is um, <laughs> we had such a hippie no we weren't hippie at all um so um yeah, so I had all that influence, and I, but the, my, my main, main um, rem memory of music was in school, when schools had free music lessons, and um, the teacher gave me a recorder, and I was m probably about five, and that was it for me, oh my gosh. You could make tunes, you could make a noise, and you could t carry it with you, so I, I was kind of that child that just um, wanted the bass a recorder, the treble recorder, the sopranino, the fife recorder. Um, any, anyone who wanted to talk recorders, I was your man, you know. But did you, did you tell... Everyone else was like, oh my God, don't talk to her. She said, oh, did she you tell people, recorders. And did you tell people that you wanted to be Bob Dylan? Or was this a kind of, just an ambition that was in you and that was sort of secret? Um, no, because if you, see, if you tell people your dreams, they might never come true. And I still think that as well. So you have to kind of work towards them without telling anyone in case they jinxed it. Okay. So I don't know if I ever told you anything and, and I de definitely didn't tell my friends or my, my parents because if you turned around and said you wanted to be Bob Dylan, frankly, you'd be laughed out of your Swansea city neighborhood, you know. Well, you haven't done badly, though. I mean, there, there is probably only still one Bob Dylan, but you haven't done badly. You know, if you aim high, even if you get, like, quarter of a way, at least you've got somewhere. Yes. Is my theory. Yeah. So what, so what gave you the musical? I'm not talking about the sort of emotional and intellectual confidence. What gave you the musical confidence to launch a career? Did you just... And I mean, I, you're probably too modest to answer this yes, but did you just know you were good enough? It's quite a good question. Because you are a you are a great you know you are clearly a great songwriter, and so you know, okay, lots of people want to be in a rock and roll band, mm -hmm. but but most people don't have the guts and the gumption to see it through, and that must come from a certain confidence. I'm not sure. I th I think sometimes I think that not not having confidence drives you on more, and and there's this perfectionism and this sort of yeah, I've met an awful lot of very successful artists that are so insecure yes. in their art, and it just keeps you driving forward. Um, but I did, I, I, I was quite sure when I was young that that's what I was, that's all that mattered. And then it's a matter of luck, it's a matter of practice, it's a matter of sheer dogged determination. 
Mm. Um, all of that. So when you were playing the recorder as a, as a young child or whatever, <laughs> were you making up your own tunes? So cool. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. I, should we ask, anyone got a recorder on them? Because we might be able to have a recycle. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, Hell, yeah. I used to, do you remember? I used to play it on stage with Catatonia and a okay. couple of songs and then throw it for free into the audience. So, so okay, so you, really quite young, you had amazing success with Catatonia. I mean, that was, that, that was really a substantial thing. So... Maybe you had the musical confidence, maybe you didn't. What, what was that like, being successful as, I think not just as a person, but as a woman in a, in a band? In a, well, in a, in what I assume, from my experience, I was in the music industry, which is how I met Keris's husband um, in the 80s and early 90s. What, what was it that, I mean, that was a man's world. Was it easy or was it, in the end, was it kind of just frightening and disappointing or...? Well, for one, and this has become quite apparent of late. I've got a 14-year-old daughter um, who is absolutely the policeman when it comes to gender specification. Is that a word? You cannot be gender specific in my house, otherwise the policeman, Glennis, <laughs> comes out with a truncheon and bats you. And it's only just recently, so you're talking about, you know, calling people they, not presuming that they're going to want to wear blue or pink, not wanting to, you know. You know yeah. And I, you know, and this asexuality, and, and, and I just thought, well, that's exactly how I've thought all my life. Because yeah. Yeah. as a child in primary school, I was in a school called Brynamore in um, Swansea, and the boys, you know, it's not, I'm not as old as you, Charlie, but... Um, we share the same <laughs> birthday, but I'm a little bit older than that. <laughs> In school, we'd have the choice um, if you wanted, if you were, no, we didn't have the choice. If you were a girl, you did sewing, and if you were a boy, you did woodwork. If you were a girl, you did rounders, and if you were a boy, you did football. So I'm like, Mr. Phillips, I want to play football. Um, and I'd like to try woodwork, you know? It looks pretty interesting to me. I, I'd like to make a pencil case. I don't want to sew again. Um, what I'm trying to say is that I never thought of myself as a girl. No, okay. But so so to, to think of, oh, what's it like to be a ghoul in a man's world, that, that, that never, I never saw it that way. I was just a person in a band. There's a lot of, you know, most of the time it was, it was a man's world, but I just, you just never define yourself by it. And I, and I think the world's a bit healthier if you don't define yourself Yeah, no, by I'm that. sure that's right. And, that's, and that's, that's the beauty of progress is where we're aiming and, and heading for is that we're all allowed to be as feminine or as masculine or whatever you want to call it as we want to be. So I think... Without any pressure either, you know. So if you you want to be a very pink kind of girl, that's brilliant too, and vice versa, you know. Yes. So was it... So, but was that... Was that everything that you'd imagined it had been when you became a star? I mean, your band was successful or, or kind of, you know... Was it not quite as you'd imagined it was when you were playing the recorder and wanting to be Bob Dylan? (laughs) Yeah, because it wasn't a celebrity that attracted me at all. No. Um, it was just the idea of being able to play music. And, and I still get a thrill when you meet musicians. Like I just saw um, Tom Morris and, and Gwyneth Glynn on stage. Tom was a huge hero to me growing up. You know, he's another maverick who just, you know, faced with social conventions. You know, he'd just fly with the wind that he wanted to follow, you know. And, and, um, and I've forgotten the question. <laughs> Can anyone remember the question? Oh yeah, I <laughs> Was it fun? No, I remember it. It. it was a good question. Yeah. It wasn't anything 
like what you imagine if you if you ever imagine what it's going to be like but the best feeling in the world has got to be when you've written songs or if you've drawn a picture or, or if you've written something or if you achieve something in work whatever you do and it's acknowledged or if, if it makes sense to somebody else or in, if in any sense of the word it's it's improved the world a little bit or, or made the world better for a second and so if, you, if you've written a song and I remember it was um, it was road rage um, and we'd been really working hard for many many years on the road playing to a dog um, <laughs> And not much else, not many, you know, no people. So, so it wasn't an overnight success. So when suddenly we had this album that was starting to pick up more than just, you know, your brother and, and, and a dog. Um, and it got on the radio and, and we played Glastonbury for the second time. The first time we didn't play because the, the stage had sunk in the mud. But the second time, and then to get up on stage and to sing these songs and to actually be acknowledged, not only that, but to hear people singing and, and looking like they're liking it. Yeah, that, that, must, that must be extraordinary. And then it feels like you're flying. Yeah. You know, and that's yeah. the dangerous bit. Because you do, you stand there and you're looking around and you, you, you're in sync with your musicians on stage and you're in sync with the audience. The variables have lined up. And then, and then you start to, to be Superman, you know? Yes, yeah, so and you have to kind of rein that in. Well. No. <laughs> I'm not well. sure I'm allowed to go there, am I? Well, no. <laughs> no, but was that, a fun, was that a fun few years then when, when the success really came and you had a succession of hits from that particular album? Was that, was that just amazing or was it? Well, I do remember turning left in an aeroplane for the first time. Uh, we were flown out first class to Los Angeles on Virgin, I think it was, and the, there was a tro the lady with the trolley, and I've never forgotten this, a huge amount of caviar. They never do it anymore. They don't no, do it. I'm no. sure they don't. I don't think they, I mean, I don't go to first class. No. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a mound of caviar, and, and then they were like, oh, Ms. Matthews, would you like a massage in this flight? <laughs> like, yeah, man. You know, get, <laughs> I can get used to this, and that's the trouble, you see. You get used to being absolutely and utterly spoilt. You know, one thing, if people start recognising your face, you are facing, and if you see somebody famous, you are looking at a very spoilt person right there. Very. Which I quite like. <laughs> <laughs> and then people say, is it a bother to you when, you know, people come and say hello? It's not a bother. For people in my job, when you stop being bothered, it's a problem. So to never fear that, you know, we're, we're grateful and we know it's part of the job and, and it's, it's sort of, uh, we'd worry if it didn't if you're, if you're ignored. I mean, talk, talking of, of jobs, I think what's really unusual about you is that you've had not just one successful career, but several. And I mean, I'm, I'm talking of you've been a very successful author, but it's amazing how you transitioned into the radio so comfortably and um and now I, I think your radio show i think keris's radio show is the most listened to on all of the digital bbc so that's quite a feat to have a thank you thank you um to, to have a, a you know an incredibly successful career as as a musician and then to for whatever reason stop that how how, how did that come about it's, and what's it's financial pressure, Charlie. It's, um, it's the modern world, you know. You, you can't sell music anymore. 
uh, Spotify, if I, if I waited to, even if I was still at the peak of my selling prowess musically, it wouldn't be enough to feed my children. Um, and I don't want to tour anymore, which, which you can't, you know, there's still, you can still, if you, if you fill out a theater, you can make money that way. But no, seriously, all of us are facing this. The world is changing so fast. You can't rely on pensions. There's a zero contract. Um, there's the gig work um, climate and all the rest of it. It's changing so fast. So it just, this, it's not just me. I think there's a lot of us that are wearing lots of different hats just to keep our heads you know, in, in, the, in the race, you know. I'm actually thinking, I don't know what you think, the podcast might take over the radio fairly soon. <laughs> um, I, no, but I mean, you, you know, that you're, you're very modest about that, but you've transitioned to, to doing what is clearly an absolutely brilliant radio show, which has, it, it has the, the essence, well, it always strikes me, and you might say if I'm wrong, it, it's because it has the essence of you in it that it's successful, that you, you do actually, I mean, I'd like to ask you about the mechanics of it, but do you think that's right, that, it, that people know that it's coming from someone's soul? Because I don't know what a lot of people think, but I think a lot of the rec, sort of radio on the BBC, particularly on Radio 1 and Radio 2, just sounds like someone's being wheeled into a room and, and told what to do. Whereas your show, and, and it's true generally with music on Radio 6, that you kind of feel like something. Do you think that's why yours has been so successful, that you invest so much of yourself in it? I think it's all to do with the recordings I play, actually. Right. Um, I, I, don't, I can't think of many places where you can hear lead belly next to a pigeon, um, <laughs> which you will hear on Sunday if you listen, um, or elephants talking like humans. Um, or cat singing and I mean and what I'm trying to say and, and if you do listen if you don't listen I'm on Sundays from 10 to 1 on BBC 6 music which you can find if you haven't got a digital radio yet you can find on your satellite TV and stuff like that just just in case okay um, but it, it just it is I get complete freedom to play anything I want and I've always loved strange crackly vintage I, I like record I like sound I like bird song. I like the sound of wind rustling. Last night it was not so nice when I heard the rain coming. Um, but you get the drift. You know, music can be. It doesn't have to be a commercial entity. It doesn't have to sound um, in one way. It comes in all glorious myriad forms. And I've always thought that. And I've been given, thanks to the BBC, complete freedom to fill three hours with the kind of music that I'd want to hear. And I think there's a huge chunk of us out there and I think a lot of you are here today that doesn't want to be serviced by an algorithm you know that wants to read and, and, and read widely and make your own mind up and question and pick your way with whatever suits you particularly you know yes oh thank yeah. you <laughs> well I think that's the, but the unfortunate way that you know we're, we're going against the sort of globalization trend here you know the mass production and one size fits all kind of thing and there's got to be a point where we're like hang on a minute but i think i think this is interesting because i mean i i'm so i you know since i've known Keris, i've been intrigued by this thing that you how, how much time you put into the show during the week and i think i, I imagine that people here would be interested to know and people listening to this would be interested to know about the sort of mechanics. So you do you do the whole show yourself. You put it all together, don't you? And how long does that take you? And how do you do it? Um, well, my husband, when I first started doing the show, um, 
start, started to fall out with me because I was spending too long doing it. Okay. <laughs> so it was it was as long as I wanted because it's so much fun. If you're interested in music and sound, you can just get lost down rabbit holes and you, you can lose days, you know, and it's like, Karas, what? You know, headphones on kind of. No, but at this point, I've, I've got like a skeleton in my head that I kind of try and follow to make it easier. So I usually spend a, about a day or two on it. But I do have a team. I, I send them all the music. I send them the order. I request the, the, the guests and I make up the features. And if I hear great stuff on Radio 4, I'm a huge Radio 4 fan, and there's some brilliant PM and stuff like that. If I hear anything that I think my listeners would love to hear that might have missed it, I, I steal from them as well. So I don't know if anyone heard the, um, the reason I'm doing a pigeon show on Sunday. It's bridges and pigeons are the themes. It's because I'm here with you. Um, and, but so um, with the pigeon theme, I've, there was a BBC documentary on BBC Radio 4 recently on pigeon whistles. Did anyone hear that? Yeah, and it was interesting, wasn't it? Because, you know, who'd have sunk it? You know, who'd have thought, for one, of putting tying whistles to pigeon tails? <laughs> Look, just, a, just a couple of other things before we move on to poetry. Um, one of the things that int- intrigues me, which I think about a lot, and, and, and you and I are very much in the same boat, is... How is it, so Keris's husband, Steve, or Abbo as I know him, um, is, is your manager and you work with him. <laughs> and I, I work with my wife as well. I mean, I, I think it's, it's always really intriguing to talk about these kind of, these, I mean, Caroline and I had, I think, a very, very sort of, probably because I was a bit of a twat actually, but a very difficult <laughs> kind of early working relationship. And now it works very smoothly. I mean, how how many years have you been married, Charlie? 29.7. Pretty cool, huh? <laughs> and six children. Yeah, but but I mean, I think you know. It, do, you, do you? I mean, does that work really well? I mean, because it is often hard to know when to leave, you know, work and home, isn't it? Does it work well for you? We've been together for ten years now. Actually, we celebrate ten years in October, which is which is amazing. <laughs> um, you've got to kiss a lot of frogs to get to that point. Uh, to, to get to a point where you meet somebody that, and, and to get, and this is what I tell my daughter who's fourteen. Don't date until you're 34. <laughs> and this is the one piece of advice, because I think, I, think, I think, you know, it's a dangerous place when you start giving advice to people, right? But there is one piece of advice that I happily give to anyone involved in the music business or entertainment business. I say to them, right, okay, you'll get successful. Whatever you do, never date the first wave of uh, admirers. Then the nutters. <laughs> just wait, wait, because the nice ones are at the back. And that's, that's the truth. That's a I've dated analogy. so many nutters. <laughs> because they're the only ones that I've got the confidence or, or the nutterness. Oh, I'm not allowed to say nutter anymore, am I? Sorry. <laughs> the strange ones. Are you allowed to say that? Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> anyway. The, um, the ones that might not be so cool for you to date come first. <laughs> so I think, I, I don't quite, so before we move on to the poetry, I, this is a kind of interesting thing because I'm kind of asking myself a question, but we started a festival together. Yeah. And, and I think it might be interesting to kind of talk just for a little bit about sort of why we did it. I mean, I'll tell you the story is that, as I mentioned earlier, I was in the music business with Abbo. I didn't like the music business and I managed a band and I left in 1994 
And then so give us some names of the bands you signed. I, saw, I, I, I signed a, Yeah, I signed a band called the Charlatans who did really well. Love uh, the Charlatans. They might be giants. Um, who are amazing, still going. And actually, they make a million dollars a year from doing the soundtrack to um, Malcolm in the Middle. Did and there are only two of them. I, I sang a song <laughs> with them, I think. Yes, you did. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I, so I was in Rough Trade Records. We had and a shop. the Sundays. And the Sundays, yeah. Bank of the Sundays, who are ama- actually amazing. But we, um, so we have, a rec- we have a shop next door to this record shop called Rough Trade. And I was in there, uh, it's absolutely amazing this, less than five years ago. And this guy said, Charlie. And I was like, Abba. And actually, uh, this is the absolute truth. I didn't make that many friends in the music industry. I was, I was just having, I got married very young and then we had three children very quickly. And so I didn't really make that many friends. And Abba was one of the truly kind of good people who I really liked. Anyway, so we had coffee like a day later and I said, I didn't know he was married to Keras. I said, I've, I've kind of got this idea for a festival with, of food and, and, um, and, and, and ideas and the great outdoors. And he was like, well, we're kind of thinking about doing a festival, and I'm I'm married to this um, sort of Welsh girl who's a singer or whatever. Anyway, so <laughs> amazingly, within a year of that meeting, we'd started the Good Life and we did it. Can I just correct you there? I believe after that meeting, it was three months. Yeah. And we and we, and we had a festival. We had a going. festival. That is, yeah, we did we, do it pretty we quickly. We turned the festival around in three yeah, months. Yeah, we did actually, July through to September, and and it was. And by the way, at the end of, so we're set, we've always been this weekend, and by the end of August in the first year, we'd sold 300 tickets. <laughs> and um, I, and at both Abbo and Keris and Carolyn and I were on holiday, and I was speaking to Abbo, I was going, do you think we should just pull it or we should do it? And then Keris was interviewed on Sky News and also on the TV. And we sold another thousand tickets yeah. straight away, and, and it and, and to be fair to Abo as well, he said, "No, we, we can't pull it now. Gotta Let's, see it we're going to do it. It's like that bear hunt. You can't go over it. Can't go under it. Yeah. Gotta go, go through, through it. it." So, what you know? What? Just talk. Just talk for a minute. I mean, for me, I love people, and I love I love producing. You know, putting on things, and I think that's the kind of motivation for me. What What's been the motivation for you? Um, my husband made me do it. <laughs> no, it's, Don't it's, say it's, that. Um, well, it's, we love festivals, A, eh? and we've all been around doing various things at festivals for all our adult lives, whether it's as punters or as entertainers or as BBC broadcasters or whatever. My husband is a promoter, does a lot of work with um, classical musicians and orchestras and the Royal Albert Hall and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and we just felt that we wanted one that could mix up everything, not just be one kind of music, but be a bit of everything, a bit of Hay Festival, a bit of the Great British Bake Off, a, a bit of Bear Grylls, you know, just a bit of everything. Something that I think, I think that's probably right. I it was think, something that was really genuinely different. I mean, not some of the elements were coming from somewhere else, but it was genuinely and, different. And not, and not to be just like, because the other thing was, we'd just come back from a major festival, having sort of taken our children and spent something like 250 pound a day just feeding them or giving them a few rides on the fairgrounds. <laughs> it's like, right, if we're going to do a festival, we're going to try and not not just squeeze everybody for every penny that they've yeah. got as well, which is quite hard to do. Um, but I want to say this at, at this point as well. What, what's beautiful about Charlie and my husband, Abbo, is that they both come from completely different, as extreme polars that you could find in terms of the social... Yeah, Sta- yes. status, yeah, I guess. I, I hope you don't mind me no, saying no, this. No. My husband's from Luton, and um, 
everyone laughs. Everyone laughs. He, he and, and, and Charlie's friendship is something that I hope for the world, for more social mobility, for more understanding between communities, between people, between... I know it sounds like Pollyanna, but I think this is the only way forward. And, and to work together with you as well as my husband, um, and when we're from... And, and that's what I love about this festival. I hope that that's what we represent. Um, yeah. is is, is yeah. that everybody has a chance to enlighten themselves and push forward whatever wherever you're from and and wherever your luck on on the earth you know I think there's there's a respect there and that, that's why I adore working on yeah. this festival with no you. I agree I, and I think you know one where people everybody everybody is genuinely welcome and um, so well Keris is very kindly um, uh, offered to read us some poetry, and as you know, she has the uh, the most exquisite voice. So yeah, I've gonna... locked the doors. You can't I'm... leave yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hand over to Keris now, and then we'll have a little bit of time for some questions afterwards. Um, I don't know if anyone was up at the castle this morning. Yes, a lot of you. <laughs> well, I'm going to read them again because, like a great record, you can't hear them enough. Um, I, I found the book on the train, and um, so I thought, well, I'm going to find some good ones from here. Um, Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, look, it, it says on the, on the tin, best love poems. There's got to be some good in there. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll start with this one, which really, for me, it, it made me smile. It made me really giggle in terms of where we're going. There's a lot of people on this earth. We're getting a lot of information. We're able to communicate like never before. It's very confusing. Uh, society, there's these huge sort of machines and your little individual's voice is really hard to be heard. Blah, 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 blah. And celebrities everywhere. We've got Instagram, Spotify, uh, Twitter, all these platforms and Andy Warhol's 15 minutes of fame has now become just this endless desperation and hunger for all of us for instant gratification on all our gorgeous gadgets, myself included, guilty as charged. But the idea of celebrity fascinates me. So this is a, one by Emily Dickinson, who was born 1830. She was a recluse for most of her life and wrote her poems on scraps of paper. And after she died, these poems were collected together and they've become regarded as amongst the most brilliant and original verses in the language. I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell. They banish us, you know. How dreary to be somebody. How public. Like a frog. To tell your name the livelong day to an admiring bog. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and another one here, which is also quite short, and then I'm going to do I'm going to do a love poem. It's quite it's quite hard to read. It's a question on pleasant on the main stage that we can go and groove to in a minute. So I won't I won't be too long. So this is uh, another lady, Edna St Vincent Millay, born 1892, uh, frequently associated with a bohemian life, so quite perfect for the, perf uh, for the <laughs> festival, um, the life of the Greenwich Village. I'm sure she'd love it here. Well, I'd hope she would. She would. I'd hope Bob Dylan would as well. <laughs> On the show on Sundays, a little excerpt of an interview I did with Dave Stewart talking about going to meet Bob Dylan in L.A., and Bob Dylan taking him off into the hills of LA into a Spanish bar. 
So you have to listen to that one. That's Sunday. Oh, no, you'll be here. I play it. Anyway. So, like, if Bob Dylan likes, like, hanging out in, like, dive bars in, in, uh, up in the hills of L.A., that's perfect, isn't it? That's what you want him to do. You don't want to hear that he's at a mama hotel hanging out with Miley Cyrus. Having a massage. <laughs> having a caviar-based massage. I've got to turn a left on the plane. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I bet he does that. I bet he does that, too, Come yeah. on. He likes a bass, I hear. <laughs> if there's anything you learn in this festival, you learn this. Bob Dylan likes a bass. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know that, but I know that. My candle burns at both ends. It will not last the night. But oh, my foes and all oh, my friends, it gives a lovely light. <laughs> And now, and now, one last one. <laughs> we are friends now. You don't have to clap. <laughs> the passionate shepherd to his love. This is, uh, it was like a rival in a way um, to Shakespeare and, and Elizabethan England. Uh, so this is a love song to you for, for taking the risk to get the tickets to come and join us at The Good Life. And we really wish you a very, very wonderful weekend. Uh, so here we are. Come live with me and be my love, and we will all the pleasures prove that hills and valleys, dales and fields, or woods or steepy mountain yields. And we will sit upon the rocks and see the shepherds feed their flocks by shallow rivers, to whose falls melodious birds, like pigeons, sing madrigals. <laughs> And I will make thee beds of roses and a thousand fragrant posies, a cap of flowers and a kirtle embroidered, all with leaves of myrtle. A belt of straw and ivy buds with coral clasps and amber studs. And if these pleasures may thee move, come live with me and be my love. Because it's all about nature here as well. I forgot to mention that about the festival, so get down. And if you've got shellac nails like I have, get them dirty, like I have. The shepherd, the shepherd, sorry, Christopher Marlowe. The shepherd swains shall dance and sing for thy delight each May morning. If these delights thy mind may move, then live with me and be my love. <laughs> amazing 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 um wonderful thank you very much Karis. we've got um just a few minutes for a couple of questions if you wouldn't mind so what i'll what i'll do is i'll give you this mic I, this is why okay yeah, yeah. so is that, does anyone have a question for Karis? Oh God! I'm like uh, Kiri Tukanawa. I've retired. <laughs> Shall we sing a song together? Yeah, come on, let's sing a song. That's perfect. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are grey. Maybe not. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. 
The other night, dear, when I lay sleeping, I dreamt I held you in my arms. <laughs> when I awoke, dear, I was mistaken, and I held my head and I cried. One more time from the beginning. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are grey. When skies, come on, Luton. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Well, that's it. Um, that's it for my talk with Keris. Um, what an amazing way to end. Um, I hope you couldn't hear me singing in the background there because my voice isn't very good, even though I absolutely love that song. Um, the whole festival is amazing and my aim over the last next few months is to try and catch up with a few of the people who came to the festival. I had kind of naively intended to talk to some people over the course of the weekend but of course um, as reality would have it I was just far too busy um, to do much chatting in tents with people with my recorder. But anyway, thank you very much for joining me this weekend. Thanks to my friend Jim Friend for editing this and making it all sound okay. And thanks most of all to you um, for either coming to the Good Life Experience or listening here. And if you didn't come to the Good Life Experience, please try and come next year because I promise you, you'll have a great time. Okay, I'll see you soon. Bye.